Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Women in the Wilderness, Four Narratives of Spiritual Power with Dr. Aviva Zornberg is presented by the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series 5780. All four lectures can be found at elma.pardes.org. For other digital content, please visit us online. Good evening for the fourth and last of, the, of this series. I am deliberately not going to, tr- to open by thinking about the four as a, as a unit. I was tossing up whether to do that or not, to try to think if there is something in common aside from the fact that they are all women. And I could easily do it, and yet I think what I really want to do is just to move onwards and leave you to do the synthesizing, to think back on what stood out for you those of you who were here through the whole ordeal, um, what stood out for you and what you think is the common factor among these women, if there is such a thing. Tonight I want to talk about the much-beloved Ruth. I think the book of Ruth is one of the most loved books in Tanakh, and there's good reason for it. It does have a dark side, however. It has a bright side and it has a dark side. I want to start at a poignant moment, perhaps the most poignant moment in the whole, in the whole Megillah, in the whole book. In chapter 2, when Ruth stands in the field of Boaz, whom she knows only from Naomi as somehow belonging to the family, Moda, somehow he is known to us, meaning he is part of, what part of our family. And she stands there, and Boaz is very kind to her as the stranger girl from Moab who has been very kind to her mother-in-law. That's all he knows about her. And he offers her the resources of the field. And then we read, And she fell on her face, and she bowed down to the ground. And she said to him, she said to Boaz, I'm deliberately emphasizing those harsh uh, gutturals. Yes. My, why have I found favor? She, she falls on her face and she bows down to the, um, in front of him. She prostrates herself in front of him. And she says, why have I found favor in your eyes? To know me, Lakirani, and I am a stranger. And I hear bitterness in that. Now, it's true that Ruth is never called bitter. In the character portrait of Ruth, which we're going to be trying to put together this evening, it's not an easy task because she doesn't yield to easy characterization, it seems to me. In the character portrait of Ruth, there is no bitterness mentioned. And bitterness is quite a feature, of course, in someone else's portrait. And that is, paradoxically, Naomi, the mother-in-law who is called sweetness, and who says, don't call me sweetness, because God has very, been very bitter with me. So this is a woman who comes back, returns, a widow, with two sons also dead, and she returns to her old home, full of bitterness and empty of everything else. God took me out of here full all those years ago, and he brought me back empty. Now, that's an unequivocal, bitter, tragic cry. If I had all evening to talk about Naomi, there's plenty to say. But I'm focusing on Ruth. And Ruth is not a bitter person. 
It's very clear from the way she speaks. She's always mentioning God, this sense of blessings. We'll see. But at this point, in really the first major speech we hear from her with Boaz, in her relationship with Boaz, she says, why have I found favor in your eyes? That expression. In other words, in ordinary Hebrew, in ordinary modern English, let's say, uh, why do you like me? Limsochen, a beautiful expression in biblical Hebrew, I have found grace, favor in your eyes. I have found beauty. It's as close to the word beauty as we're going to find in this book. Ruth is not a beautiful woman, or at least we have to say she is not described as a beautiful woman. She may have been beautiful, but that's not a feature in the story. We don't have the usual introduction of the romantic heroine which is, you know, he lifted up his eyes and he saw, and behold, there she was, that's Yaakov seeing Rachel first time. She's gorgeously beautiful. Two different ways of being beautiful. In Ruth's case, no mention of beauty. She is, she says, and she says it in her own word. It's a strange word to use of oneself. Anochi nochriya. I am a stranger, a nochri. Now that's about the most, the most clinical and I think in a way aversive word that you can use. You know what I mean by aversive? A word that expresses a certain distance and repulsion. It's the, the stranger who is the one who is not known, who is other and who is forbidden in some sense. Nochri is the, is the outsider. It's not a neutral word. And she uses it of herself as if she has some kind of double perspective on herself, I would say. On the one hand, she understands enough about their world, having lived with Nomi all these years. She knows enough about the, the Israelite world, shall we say, to know that there is such a thing as a stranger. She may know even more than that. And that is a hidden aspect of her identity and of the whole story hidden in the sense that it's not specifically mentioned in the story. And that is that of all possible stranger women who can come to seek their fortune in Bethlehem Yehuda, in Judea of that time, a Moabite woman is the least welcome. She is the most nochria of all nochriot, in the sense that, and this is the way this is, the story of Ruth has always been read traditionally, um, modern scholarship doesn't emphasize that for, for its own reasons. But if we read by the benefit of tradition, then we understand that behind Ruth, haunting Ruth, is a pasuk in, in the book of Deuteronomy, Sefer Devarim, Lo yavo amoni umoavi b'kahal Hashem. No Ammonite or Moavite can ever enter into the community of God. And so there she is with a ban, a ban over her. I sometimes imagine her that when she walks into, into the gates of Bethlehem, there is a banner up over the gates say, saying that pasuk, lo yavo, no entry to Ammonites and Moabites. Now I'm being dramatic here, but that, that is clearly has to do with her identity. And she's always referred to in the, in the uh, almost always in the course of the narrative, everyone takes trouble to add the word hamoavia. She's not just root. You would think by, by after a certain point, we know very well what her, her ethnicity is. 
but it's made a point of, Ruth HaMoavia, as if to emphasize her taboo quality. There's something about her that is, she can never, what can she never do? Come into, yeah. what does it come into the community of God? She can come shopping in the market in Bethlehem. She can, she can make a social visit. What she can't do is the deep meaning of the word lavo bekahal. To enter into the community has to do with blood. It has to do with sexuality. It has to do, right, the word lavo, vayavo eleha, has to do with the description of the sexual act. She can't enter into the organism of Israel because she is a Moabite. Moabites and Ammonites. So they are, she is forever banned. That sounds like a completely unequivocal ban. Now that is something that she presumably is aware of. And everyone is aware of it. The boy in the field who answers Boaz just before this, when Boaz asks, whose is that girl? And he's obviously interested in her. And for a moment, we see her through his eyes, and we wonder, what is it that he's interested in? He doesn't say. He doesn't say what a gorgeously beautiful woman she is. No one refers to her beauty at all. It's as if she's not Let's forget about beauty in relation to her. Um, something interests him. Chazal, the sages, have something to say about her modesty and her intelligence, so on, qualities of character. I would almost like, at this early stage, to use the expression that I put in the, on the original advertisement for this series, the expression spiritual power. That is, there's something about her that draws attention. In spite of the fact that she has no, apparently her physical attributes are not outstanding. That's not, that's not it. And so he asks, whose is she? Lemi, Hanara Hazot. And the boy answers very uh, conscientiously, a little over-conscientiously. You know, she's that Moabite woman who accompanied Nomi, who came back with Nomi. Uh, meaning, you know, well, we don't really know what to do with her, but she's here, so we, give, we, let her, we let her glean in the field. And Boaz reacts by being extra generous to her. And she bows down then and she says, how is it that you seem to know me, Lahakireni, to recognize me in some way? and I am a stranger. And she says it with absolute frankness. You know, she's putting it on the table. You know I'm a stranger. Let this be on the table between us. We know, we know that. Uh, and, um, and of course, the power of what she says, I think that already has a kind of, her sentence has a kind of literary power, and I'd almost say spiritual power, um, because she's using two words, to know me, and I'm a stranger, lakireni and nochria, and they mean the opposite of each other. You know me, even though I'm not known. I am nochri, I'm out, an outsider. And the irony is that in Hebrew, the two words come from the same root. Nochri, nun chavresh, and lahakir is lahankir. Yeah, there's a nun in the root. Nun chavresh is to mark someone out, someone being marked out. That recognizable in that sense. Oh, I know, yeah, I recognize that. Well... You seem to know me as somehow, and I am only known by being unknown. You know, she says, how do you seem to associate anything, anything at all with me, other than the fact that I'm that woman? I'm the outsider who came back with, who came back with Nomi. That's, and he answers her afterwards very sweetly, 
it's a very beautiful answer to, to someone who feels like a stranger, who feels deeply like a stranger, like out of town, you know, I've, I've come with it. Uh, he says to her, Huged Hugadli, I've been told all about you, about the kindness that you did with your mother-in-law. I, in other words, I know you on that level, on the level of stories I've heard about you, I've already in some sense met you in my mind. In my mind, I've already thought about you, which is a really I think it's one of the nicest things you can say to someone who, uh, who is new to town. You can say, no, no, you're not so new. <laughs> you're not, when I on my travels, it's one of my greatest pleasures if people say things like, I heard you somewhere, or, or I came to your Shabbos table in Yerushalayim, or suddenly you don't feel so strange because stranger dumb, <laughs> strangerhood has an almost metaphysical quality. It's not just a social thing. All right, so you're a stranger in this society, but you're not a stranger in that society. It's bearable. But somehow when you are a stranger and you, you get to feel it, you begin to wonder where you belong in the world. What, what, where, where are you in the world? And for some reason, he has acted as if he knows her. He acknowledges her on some level. In some way, he identifies her, even though I am unidentifiable to you. You really, you really have no way of putting me into a niche of any kind because I'm other. And she says, nevertheless, in spite of that, you identify me. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. I want to think about Ruth as uh, the invisible heroine. There is the factor of her non-beauty, let's say. I'm not suggesting she is ferociously ugly, of course. Um, she is probably pleasant enough, but no point is made of her being beautiful. And that's a little bit against the convention of biblical meetings between those who are, to, in the end, to, to marry each other. The convention is to almost a politeness. Even if she's not gorgeously beautiful, you will say, she is Yifat Torah. How can you have a heroine who's not? Uh, but she is not. And I would almost say that it's not just that she is somehow not all that attractive. I'm not so, that's not my interest. But it's rather that the issue of physical beauty is simply irrelevant to the story. This story is in a strange way. All its domesticity and all its pastoral quality, it's there in the fields and in the houses and the granaries, in the market square, in, the, um, in, in a, certain, a certain spiritual quality to this book. For instance, can I point out that no one sees anyone else in this book. Normally, it's one basic. Is this? Is it, it's it's a little bit wavering. It's not sure. Okay. Um, if if it fades altogether, let me know. Yeah. Um, no one actually is described as noticing another person. You know, he lifted up his eyes and he saw. Right. That, that's that's quite striking. Once you notice it, it's as if the impact of people, which is the first impact that normally people have, make on each other, is somehow, that's not it in this book, that people sense each other in a different way. For instance, how is, if she's not known by the way she looks, how is she known? It seems to me that she's known by the way she speaks. And we're going to be listening to her rather than seeing her. Of course, if you read a book, you can't see. But normally, people who have a good visual imagination form a visual image of the heroine, of the hero and the heroine. I don't know if you're, you're one of them. But in this case, I think it's almost impossible. 
That's simply not how this book functions. And that sense, therefore, that she is not, she doesn't fit into any of the normal slots for a romantic heroine, right? that she's recognizable as a heroine in certain ways, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to her somehow. In that way, also, she is lomukar. She has, she's, she's, somehow, she's somehow different. Um, uh, what did I want to say? Oh, yes, Chazal so, say that uh, in one midrash, they actually say that she's not at all young even. Right, there's, that, there's a romantic blow. Um, she's, uh, she may be 40. <gasps> I remember when I was the other side of 40, I thought that was really very unromantic. You know, how, how, how could anything interesting happen to someone at the age of 40? Um, now I, for some reason, have a different uh, take, take on it. So we have here a 40-year-old woman and a man who's clearly older. He says it himself later. And in a sense, he thanks her later for choosing him in spite of the age gap that he's older than her. In other words, the usual factors, youth and attractiveness, yeah, the usual factors that are there in the making of a match, in the making of a romantic connection, are somehow at least subtly undermined in the story. Uh, and we don't get the impression of a very young woman, it seems to me. You know, she's been married, she's been ma married to maybe 10 years or something, a few years, anyway. Now, given, given all this, she is, I'm saying she's invisible, she's not beautiful, she's unknown. And yet, for some reason, she has decided in her somewhat unclear identity, in one sense it's very clear what, who she is, she's a Moavia, but what kind of person is she? What is, what is, what is her... She says, you seem to know me. And she means on some other level than the obvious level. And I am a stranger. Uh, David Daubo, who is a considerable literary critic um, in England, Scotland, the time I was growing up, we, we read him. Uh, he has an interesting essay in which he suggests that lahakir, lahakirani, means it's a legal term. It means to recognize someone legally. In other words, to find, in this case, that you understand, why, have, why have, I been, have I been so fortunate, she says, that you have found me to be worthy, legally, to be worthy of being treated like a stranger, like a widow, like a poor person, right? these people who have special rights in the field. Now that's a very limited meaning, right? It's very nice and concrete. You know, it's nice to get hold of something. Akirani means, she says, thank you for being so kind to me and letting me into that social, what's the word I want, social assistance uh, program, you know, that I, I belong uh, in, among those laws in, in, in Sefer Vayikra. Now, that, that's one level. It's, that's very narrow. And here now is a wide open reading. Have a look at number one on your page. What does it mean to know me? Number one. She fell on, her, fell on her face and she bowed down to the ground and so on. This teaches you uh, This is a little uh, startling. This teaches you that she was prophesying. Now, I didn't know Ruth was a Nevi'ah. Right? We've had two prophetesses in our course. We had Miriam. And we've had Esther, who is right at the edge. It's difficult to define as a prophetess, but she is listed. 
And Ruth certainly is not one of them. But here Chazal are not shy to use the word that she prophesied. And in some way, she foreshadowed in what she said to him. She foreshadowed and she hinted to him, you will really know me one day. With the erotic implication. With the implication, it's more than erotic. It's the sense somewhere of something very substantial. Yeah, that, that you're really going to know me in the way that people really know each other. And here the, the, the Midrash is using lahakir in the same sense that the word biblical knowledge is used in the Torah. That's the ladat. Vayeda adam et chavaishto that Adam knew his wife, and everyone understands what that means. And that's called, slightly jokingly, in, in, uh, in non-Jewish society, biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge is that kind of intimate, that kind of intimate knowledge. And so the sages are now using the same logic and saying, why does she use an expression like that, lakirani? He obviously doesn't know her in any real sense. She is talking about something that is beginning to germinate. Now, that's my translation of she was prophesying. I don't think she really knew what was going to happen in the future. If we take that, to take that on as a midrashic trope, that she really in some sense had a strong intuition that in fact they were going to get married, then I would have to say, there goes the story. The story just disappears at that point. Because the whole story depends on the fact that she doesn't know anything and he doesn't know anything, and there's an enormous distance between them, which seems impassable at, at, at the beginning. Yeah. And without all that, where is the drama of the story? What, why do we have to keep reading? We already have read this story once or twice before, presumably, and so we know how it's going to end. Yes, And we know that right at the end, there's going to be a genealogy, in fact, a double genealogy, tracing uh, David HaMelech in the future back to back to this generation and even back to Yehuda, going all the way back in the royal line. So if look, viewed from that meta-historical point of view, metaphysical point of view, looking at it from, from the bird's eye point of view, then people do know, you know that Ruth is going to marry Boaz. When we approach the story, we know, but Ruth can't know. So what do the sages mean when they say, and not just here, they say it in many points in this first scene with Boaz, that he hinted to her and she hinted to him. I, don't, I won't go into details here because you may be a little turned off by some of these plays on word, words. But the, all right, one. He says, he says, he says to her, May your reward be complete for all the loving kindness you've shown to your mother-in-law. Yeah? So he, he uses this kind of quasi-religious language, a reward. Um, and immediately the sages come, Shlema, complete. Remez Ramazla, he was hinting to her that Shlomo would come of them. <laughs> Yet, you see, I warned you. Um, um, but, you know, I'm going to work on tolerance this evening. Um, we're going to work on being able to bear this kind of thing. Um, because, you know, I have my translations that may help to, 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 get, to ease us into a strange way of thinking. Which is not, I don't think, that she just saw the script in front of her. You know, he saw the script. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Oh, yes, yes, it says in the Torah, or it says in, in, at the end of Megillah Root that, uh, that you and I are going to marry. That's, that's useless for our purposes. Now, so what we have here, then, is a relationship between two people, which in some way 
lives in, I'm using André Neers, um, the French philosopher, his beautiful expression, lives the present, lives exposed to the radiations of the future. Now, that's it. I'm not even going to try to unpack that, just tuck it away somewhere. Somewhere, the f it's as if the future casts some kind of glow back into the present and makes a certain impact. It's like science fiction. If you read science fiction, then you, you may know what I'm, what I'm talking We'll see. We're going to see it working, it working out. One aspect of the absurdity of what seems to be the limits of the present is the way in which when Nomi and Ruth on, are on their way back home to, to Nomi's home, to Bethlehem, we read over and over again two opposite uses of the word lashuf. On the one hand, Nomi is always pressing her daughters-in-law, shovna b'notai, shovna, return, my daughters, return. And the meaning is obvious. All right? That's a, a clear meaning. Go back home. Go back to where you come from. Go back to the place that you, where your identity is. And they answer her, at first both of them, together. And then after that, Orpah drops out. And a root is left saying this impossible thing. Ki itach nashuf. We want to go back with you. Yeah? Root will keep saying it. Al tivgi lashuv me Don't keep pestering me. Don't keep insisting that I should leave you and turn around from going after you. That is, to go back home when all I want to do is to go after you. And the expression lashuv is used of going back home, and then it's used by the two women of going home, going back to Beit Lechem Yehuda, which is a place they have never been. Now, the common sense reading, you know, the way to find no problem at all with this, is to say what? What do they mean when they say, we want lashuv itach? We want to, well, they say it, that your return is our return. We want to go back to your place of origin, and we identify with you to such an extent that we, we feel as if you know, we, are, we are one with you in this. So that, that would be a kind of common sense reading. Nevertheless, what is this kind of identification? Identification, I, I don't know if you've ever worked this out, but it, it came as a revelation to me once. Uh, identification is just the opposite of identity. Your identity is that which is blatantly obvious. You don't identify yourself. I don't identify myself as a woman, let's say, or as religious or as... Because to me, these things are just so, so obvious that I can identify myself then when I want to say something that's a little less obvious. I want to say of all the many identifications I could have, these are the ones I choose. That this is who I think I am. Now that has an element of choice in it, identifications. And somehow these two women so much love Nomi, so much love her people, her God. As Ruth says in the end, when, in her great speech, she says, don't make me leave you, because after all, amech ami, elokaich elokai, your God is my God, your people is my people. In a certain sense, in the world of imagination, which is identification, you know, the sense of my true self, which is hard to get hold of, I am you. Wherever you are, then I, there I want to be, to the point of death. 
only death shall separate between us, and I want to be buried with you as well. So that expresses, of course, one can talk emotion, that she, she loves Naomi extremely. But I prefer at this point to say it's more like identification. In some way, she has come to feel that, leaving the facts aside, she is, she belongs. She belongs there. And so la shuv becomes an appropriate word for her to use of going back to Bethlehem. Naomi keeps trying to shuffle her off. She keeps trying to say, no, let's stick to facts. You know, hard facts means, and of course, she says, go back each woman to the house of her mother, le vet ima. That's your identity, the house of your mother. Or again, isha bet isha. Each woman, the play on words, isha, alef shin hei, le vet isha, ul alef yud shin hei. Each woman to the house of her future husband. Your past and your future are defined by your identity, and you are Moaviot, you are a Moavia. So go back to your past, to where you belong, and go back to where you'll find another husband, because this way you won't find any other husband. Don't try to come, come with me. So in every reasonable way, she raises barriers, and they are rational barriers, and they are, they are ethical barriers from, from Nomi's point of view. I don't want you to waste your lives. And, and finally, Root is left insisting. And you remember the split between Orpah and Root. It's done so graphically. It's a, it, from a literary point of view, it's, it's exquisite. Vatishak Orpah lachamota, verut dovkaba. And Orpah finally kissed her mother-in-law, but Root hugged, held to her, clung to her. All right, it's two similar things, to kiss and to hug, let's say. Only here it's not lechabek, but lidabek. That the idea is, it could mean anything, but it's clear that Orpah is saying goodbye. She's kissing her goodbye. And on the contrary, Root is clinging to her and saying, I don't want to leave you. Don't, 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 don't separate from me. Don't try to push me off. Now, that clingingness of Ruth, I want to pick up in a little while and to regard it as one of the clearest clues that we have in the story as to who is Ruth. What does it mean for Ruth to become, in a full sense, to become Ruth? What is she, what is she looking for? What is she, where, where is she going? There's a, there's a future that's beckoning her, invisible to anyone else. You know, no one else knows what's in her heart. And she expresses it, in, in part, beautifully in words when she talks to, when she talks to Nomi. Yeah. But what happens when they come into town? Do you remember the scene when they walk into Beit Lechem and the whole city is in uproar? What a violent almost. What's the uproar? It's really, again, it goes straight, to the, goes straight to, the, to the heart. Can this be Nomi? Is this the Nomi we knew? She is so changed. She is Lomukar. In that sense, she's also in Mechria. In that, in that limited sense, that in some way she's become unknown to them. She used to be a powerful, gracious, hospitable, rich um, aristocrat, let's say. But the years and the widowhood and, and the loss of her children have changed her considerably. And there is uproar in the city, and she then responds in kind. And she makes that bitterness speech that I referred to before, and I can't help hearing with particular pathos when she says, God took me out of here empty. I left here full, 
and God brought me back empty. And she says this with Ruth standing beside her. As if to say, the fact that Ruth is with me doesn't make any difference. And of course, again, we can work our way around that. You, know, we don't, right, you can say, well, she means, of course, of her own family. That she left with a family, with a husband and children, and she came back without. Right, there is that core meaning. Nevertheless, to say, God brought me back, Rekham, with Ruth standing there, who's just thrown in her lot with her, to death, unto death, to me suggests, and this is, I know that not everyone reads this way, it suggests that Naomi is not as enthusiastic as Ruth about the companionship. That this is not an entirely mutual relationship. For, for Naomi, it's the Moabite daughter-in-law who's accompanying her. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be difficult. What are we going to do with her? How is she going to, to play in, in, in Beit? In other words, all the awkwardness of having a Nochria as a daughter-in-law. And somewhere that social consideration and other things that go with it may be there in Nomi, which for me only makes Ruth all the more interesting. That is, she's not in it for a cozy relationship with Nomi. That in some sense she knows that she loves Nomi in a way that Nomi doesn't love her at the beginning. It seems to me that that changes in the course of time. But we have a hard, she has a hard row to. What's the expression? Hard road to, to plow? So she, she, she has hard, hard, hard work uh, ahead of her uh, uh, route. From here, I want to go to the central scene, that strange scene of darkness where certainly no one sees anyone else because it happens at midnight, the midnight hour. And this is an extremely powerful, again, fraught scene. It's a scene with more emotion in it that we quite know what to do with. What, what, what is going on here? You remember what happens. This is in chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. And we read at first that Nomi sends Ruth, whom she calls consistently my daughter. Yeah. That is, in some way, uh, the word my daughter is used eight times in four chapters. Boaz also calls her my daughter. It's a, it's a sense of age and, and relative youth, of affection, some kind. It has a peculiar quality to it. So Naomi, at this point, is willing to risk Ruth. She's willing to put, put her into some danger, some embarrassment, discomfort, in order to find a fitting home for her, to bring her... And so she sends her, nicely dressed, washed, scented, yeah, to the granary floor to go and lie down beside the landowner, the relative Boaz. And Boaz then is described as having been very happy after his harvest. The barley harvest is over. And he eats and drinks and he's merry. And he lies down and sleeps. And she comes, and this is, this is how the scene is described. <clears throat> He lies down at the edge of the pile of barley. And she came, balat, lat, lamatet, silently, witchingly. You know the witching hour in Shakespeare? The witching, W-I-T-C-H. The hour of the witches, the hour when spirits roam. You know, the, the, the point of, lat has something of that meaning. It's, it's magic, it's spells, 
lahat lat. There's something, she comes the strange stealthiness and she uncovers his feet and she lies down. And it was in the middle of the night, and that's given some weight. Does it ring a bell? Yes, everyone, yeah. Uh, the Seder night. It's a mythic quality to it. And at the hour, the witching hour, just at that turn of the hour, and the man shuddered, and he felt himself gripped. Now that vayilafat is a hapex. It's a, it only occurs once in, in the whole of Tanakh. And Rashi translates it, he feels himself twined around like light, lichen. Is that how you pronounce it? L-I-C-H-E-N? Lichen? You know what I mean? Lichen? Lichen. Like ivy. Yeah? Somehow she is tw she's twining herself around him. That's how Rashi translates it. He's gripped in some strange way. And the so clearly we are experiencing this through Boaz's perception. He's the point of view here. Um, behold, there's a woman lying there at his feet. And Rashi asks, so who do you think it was if it was not a woman? You know, um, I mean, it's dark, but still. Um, and, and the answer is, straightforwardly, shed. He thought it was a demon. Right? We're in that world. Um, it's a still a semi-pagan world. So it's a world where these, these superstitions still, still exist. And somewhere he's really troubled. Well, suddenly I've got a demonic force here. And then he realizes it's a woman. Oh, I suppose that's better. Um, so, so what happens after that? Yes, he says, Mi'at. So clearly he can't see her. He asks, who are you? And that question, who are you, is carrying her strangeness to its nth degree. He really doesn't know her. He doesn't in any way. Me at who are you? Vatomer anochi rut amatecha. She said, "I am Ruth, your maidservant." Ufarasta knafecha al amatcha ki goel ata. And you will spread your wing, your skirt, your garment over your maidservant, for you are the redeemer. Now you have to notice that she has not only said who she is. But she's gone further. She has said who he is. She's redefined him. You are the Redeemer. You are the one who has to carry out the legal, spiritual, cultural function of the Goel. And I'm not going to into all the complexities of this, which are really considerable here. Um, the idea is somewhere that if someone dies a man dies childless, then his wife should, his widow should marry either a brother or someone else from the family because of the land, so that the name of the family will be perpetuated and also marry the, and marry the wife, the widow. And here it's not the brother, and there are many circumstances here that don't quite fit in, but nevertheless, there is a category of goel. And she simply, quietly says to him, I am Ruth, your maidservant, very modest, and you are going to marry me. Um, one of the mystical commentaries actually hears in this, this is, I'm really trying you here, um, hears in this the first two of the Ten Commandments. God says, this is who I am, and this is what you are going to do or not going to do. In other words, it's a certain power that comes out there. And Ruth has that power in the darkness. It's just her voice speaking. And how does he reply? 
Brucha at Lashed Biti. Blessed are you to God, my daughter. Is he describing her or is he blessing her? Is he saying, you are a blessed person. I can feel you're a person blessed by God. Or may you be blessed. Either way, somewhere he feels this is not all in the day's work. This is something a little, a little different is happening here. And he, then it goes on to explain, this, your latter kindness to me, is even better than your former kindness to your mother-in-law, for which you are famous so far. This is a more delicate and a more generous movement on your part, that you chose me over young people, a young man, whether rich or poor. Now that introduces a whole erotic area, an area of choice, as if this poor, this poor widow really had such tremendous choice. He turns the tables on her, and he says, you know, really, it's your chesed to me we're talking about here. You don't have to think for a moment of begging me and obviously you don't, because you've just instructed me what to do. Yeah? So he, he really he joins into this, into this connection that she has now set up through words. She has made it clear that she's not begging him for anything, although she doesn't have anything and he has everything, you might say. And the whole is reversed here, and chesed becomes a reversible thing. That is, we begin to understand that chesed is not just being nice to someone. Chesed is one of the most fascinating concepts. If I had time, I'd really spend much more time on this. But it seems to me that chesed is not just being nice. Chesed can sometimes mean actually being quite, quite um, what's the word, uh, aggressive, um, assertive. You know, you insist on going into someone's home and sweeping their floors and, and looking after them when they're not at all sure they really want you or they really need you. Right, there's something very powerful about chesed. A person who does chesed is, is holding a lot of power. And he recognizes the power in her, in this voice in the dark. Now, I'm not going to follow the scene during the night. I'm now going to look with you at three midrashic sources, very briefly. Quite extraordinary sources, which take us on a kind of revolution. Number three, starting with number three. Chatzot Laila, the middle of the night. It's a quotation from one of David's psalms. Psalm 40, I think. No, sorry, Psalm 190. In, at midnight, I rise up to give thanks to you, David writes in his psalm, for your righteous laws. That's the line in the psalm. But it's at midnight that I get up to give thanks. So suddenly it's as if David, in writing a psalm, is talking about his poetic practice. He's saying, this is what I do. This, this is how I write. I get up at midnight. That's how it has to be. Otherwise, I don't write. <laughs> midnight is my hour. Why? Why has it got to be midnight? And so there are other, view, other midrashic details brought in here. One such view is that he had a, a harp or a lyre hanging over his bed. Uh, and when midnight arrived, a, a certain wind, a midnight wind would blow, a zephyr would blow, and play on the harp and wake him up. So that was a kind of improvised alarm clock that he, he had set up for himself, so that he, because midnight is his time. He doesn't want to sleep through midnight. What's so special about midnight? Why, why does it have to be midnight? Now fasten your seatbelts. <clears throat> For your righteous laws. The laws refers 
to the laws you brought upon the Ammonites and Moabites, that is, that you, you banned them. This zakot, that is the righteousness, is what you did, this is David speaking, with my grandfather and grandmother, against the background of the fact that Moabites are forbidden. That's the law part. There is the fact that you did kindness, righteousness, O God, to my grandfather and grandmother. What was that? Ilu hechishla klala achat. If he had, um, what's the word? If he had expleted, I don't know what the word is, hechish, if he had let, let shoot a single curse, me'ayin hayiti bah. I can't get over this. Where would I have come from? That's a little leap there. If he had cursed her, that would have been the end of that relationship. If he had reacted to her in a routine way, as a demon, as an outsider, as a woman who has no right to be there on the granary floor, in a culture where, where prostitutes haunt granary floors and are up to no good. You know, they're out in some way to exploit the, the, the owner. In other words, there's an imminent sense of evil, evil around, of witchcraft. And against that background, and against the background that Ammonites and Boabites are forbidden, he could very easily have just cursed her. Before he recognized her, after he recognized her, there could have been a kind of normal response of a curse. But what happened? Natata Bilibo, you, God, put it in his heart to bless her instead. As it says, Brucha at Lashem Biti. Blessed are you to God, my daughter. Now, you have to understand the scene here. This is David, who lives four generations later. Thinking back to what he knows of what happened between Boaz and Ruth. It must have come down in. You know, um, and he thinks back and he thinks. All it would have taken to break that up would have been a most natural response on his part to the sudden invasive arrival in the middle of the night of an unknown woman. A stranger woman. Yeah. Get thee behind me. Can I have kind of some kind of magic spell to get rid of her? Because she is an outsider. She, she doesn't belong. She violates the space. And instead, you put it into his heart. What a way of putting it. If you want to know what happens at a moment when you are just about to curse, and for some reason you find yourself blessing instead, then here's the answer. God put it in your heart. <laughs> I hear it that way. It's not that God came and put it in his heart in a laborious way. It's that who, who could have predicted this? That suddenly he would switch from an aggressive mode, an anxious mode, in which he feels anxiety-ridden because of this woman, to some kind of trusting mode where he's able to say, Brucha at Lashem Biti. Blessed are you to God. And that allows me to be here. Now, it's that twist in the story that I, I want to stay with for a minute now. Where would I have come from? Now, notice the word ba. Mi'ayin hayiti ba. Ba, to come, echoes lo yavo. Lo yavo amoni umoavi. I was never supposed to come. No Ammonite Moabite would ever, was ever supposed to marry in, and therefore I could never have been born. And the truth is that this remains, certainly in rabbinic readings, and even to some extent in the 
text itself, it remains a thorny issue in David's life. That there are people who oppose him on the count that he comes from suspicious background. Now, legally, how is it that it becomes permissible for him to marry, for, 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 for Root actually to marry, to, marry, to marry Boaz? Let's get the technical uh, material somehow just put on the table. Um, the, the, the way that the Midrash puts it is that just at that time when Root came to town, the Sanhedrin, the Beit Din met, the court of, the, of Beit Lechem met, and dealt with the problem of that verse, no Ammonite or Moabite <laughs> shall ever enter the, the community of God. It's happened to be just when Root was there. Now, I, I think, forgive me if I, I assume too much, it seems to me clear that it didn't just happen. That there is something about Root and her power, her chesed and her power, that makes her a problem for the court. How can we think of her as an Ammonite and a Moabite in the usual way? when what bans them is a lack of chesed. The explanation for why they are banned is because they didn't bring out food and water to greet you in the desert when you were traveling in the desert. And we don't want to have any marital um, traffic with, with people who lack chesed. That's, not, that, that's, a, that's a violation. But Ruth so clearly is not like that. So they have to look for a loophole. And the loophole, which is the way law moves, is very clear and even rather logical. It doesn't say a woman who is a Moabite, it says a man who is a Moabite. Moavi velo Moavia. And I know people sometimes roll their eyes a little at this. I really don't, because the idea is very gendered. Who would have brought out bread and water to a visiting army? Clearly, it would have been the men. So the women are not disqualified. There is something to go on there. The main thing that there is to go on is this Nochria, this particular Nochria, who is so un-Nochria, who reminds, who reminds uh, Boaz, in fact, according to one Midrash, when he says, you left your father and your mother and your, and your birthplace to come to a land that you don't know. Right? That does remind us of someone, yeah, the founder of, of the Jewish people, Avraham. So somewhere it's as if one of the first things Boaz says to her is, well, I've heard all about you and you remind me of us of, in, at our best, you know, at our, at our origin. So there is that complexity and legally the affair is sorted out just at that time, just, just in time. Okay, leaving the law part aside, there's still a lot to be, to be worked out. How is she going to be accepted? And what we see here is a kind of dramatic example of, a, of, of an, almost an autonomic response on the part of, 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 of Boaz, which would have been a curse. It would have been the most natural response. And somehow it manages to soften into a blessing. Something opens up here, intimately, in, in him. Otherwise, where would I have come from, says David. I could never have emerged. I could never have made it into the world. So that sense of things. And here I can't help thinking of the way in which children hear about how their parents met. You know, and the parents emphasize sometimes uh, the, the miracle, you know, the, the coincidence of the way we met. You know, I was just about to leave the room, and there she came, and she, she dropped all her books, and then I helped her pick up the books, and, and, and then the rest is history. You know, it, we could have missed each other just like that. You know, I could have been out before she came. And, you know, 
being brought up in such stories, the intelligent child, I count myself as an intelligent child, and I assume that there's lots of intelligent children in this room. Um, the intelligent child asks herself, but the child knows, even if he doesn't know genetics yet, that it had to be these two parents to make me. It was an instinct. It wouldn't have done if mommy would have married someone else. So what about me? Are you saying that I didn't have to be? Now that's, a, that's quite a disturbing experience of, I don't know, genetic randomness. You know, a sense somewhere, what, you mean it's just, I might not have been, but I had to be. Obviously I had to be. Isn't that obvious? <laughs> I had to be, and certainly David Amelach had to be. David certainly feels that he had to be. You mean it all hangs on, on what? A second, a breath, in which a curse turns into a blessing? You know, that's what it hangs on. Otherwise, I couldn't come. You know, she, he, she couldn't have come in. She couldn't have come into that marriage, and I couldn't have come into the world. It's, it's too much to take on. Like all metaphysical questions, you know, these are the kinds of questions that we've almost given up asking. I think because we're, I don't know, somehow worn down. Um, but have a look at the next at the next midrash. Very similar. <clears throat> so now you know why David always writes his songs and praises at midnight. Midnight is my creative time because I'm always reliving that moment when I suddenly came to be, where my coming to be became possible you know, in one moment. Similar idea in the next midrash, carried on. Uh, human anxiety places pitfalls, but one who trusts in God shall be uplifted. So here you have again, you have the idea of anxiety, that Boaz is very anxious. Like someone else back in history was very anxious, that was, who was that? Yitzchak? Yitzchak vayecherad Yitzchak charada gedola ad mo'od. When he realized he had given the blessing not to the son he had planned. Yes? He, he trembles with an exceedingly great anxiety. But what does he say? He has, he's facing Esav, his beloved son, whom he must regret that he didn't give the blessing to. But what does he say? <coughs> the gum baruch yeh. And indeed he shall be blessed. Even though he took the blessing, and even though I'm shuddering with a sense here of, I don't know where I am in the world, nevertheless, I can't help knowing that blessing is uppermost, that, here, that, that that's what, what is here. And the same principle is then carried through to Boaz here, that he also, badin haya, it would have been absolutely right and normal for him to curse in this situation. That's what you would expect him to do. And yet, call it grace, you know, something else happens, which is God in his heart. God. And the third one brings in another important theme, <coughs> which will... Stay with us, hopefully. Um, quotation again from Tehillim. This time is Tehillim Mem. As amarti hine bati. Extraordinary pasuk. Then I said, look, I've come. Hine bati. I've made it into the world. Midrash picks up. As, as, then, ha, is a code for song. Like, like Moshe singing at the Red Sea. As yashir Moshe. I should be singing a song, says David, 
about the fact that I've come. That I've come into what's more, what's, what is more appropriate for me in this situation, in this hair's breadth situation of having made it into the world. I was the impossible child, I was the miracle child. Um, what is the better, what could be a better response than to sing a song? And that's why he spends his life singing songs. And what he spends his life doing, Shirot Vatishbachot, is really, it's a hair's breadth, it's a recognition of radical wonder. What does Heschel say? Radical amazement, something like that. A sense that if only we allowed ourselves to feel it, we would feel that more often. You know, that somewhere we would have a, a, a more acute sense, more poignant sense of how little things stand on. You know. And so that's, that's where poetry comes from. That's where song comes, where music comes from. And that's who he is now. That is who, who, and in the end, what is he really celebrating? He says there are two references in Tanakh to the fact that I'm not supposed to be. And there are two other references to the fact that I am the one. That is, I was loyavo on the one hand and bati on the other. Here I am. I did come. I was not supposed to come. But so the negative and the positive are in some kind of equi equilibrium. So a, a breath can make a difference. Someone who chooses between cursing and, you know, for no good reason, you know, and suddenly we'll, have, we'll do that. That, that could make a difference. So there is some sense there of really a, a kind of metaphysical, <coughs> it's almost a metaphysical, physical sense of how the world works. Um, starting with a relationship between a man and a woman, Boaz and, Boaz, Boaz and Ruth, in a, in a minute moment uh, of, of that experience. And so now we have song. So why is Ruth called Ruth? I understand Nomi is sweetness, and Boaz has to do with strength, but root is a kind of unpromising root. Resh vav taf. What do you do with that? Have a look then at number six. Why is she called root? Marabi Yochanan. She zachta mena David, because she merited that there came forth from her David. She rivehu la kadosh baruchu, b'shirot v'tishpachot. What's rivehu? Resh vav hey. The root of root, Reish Vav He, means overflowing, overflowing yes. When liquid overflows, yeah, kosir vaya, my, my, my cup overflows, yeah. It's, it's the equivalent for liquid of uh, Lisboa, is for you know, to, be, to be full and more. Um, so the idea of liquid overflowing, and so what, why is she called root? Because she merited that there came forth from her meaning literally from her body. The idea of from the loins of the loins. It's very physical in a sense. There came forth what? David, who saturated God with songs and praises, who, who satisfied some divine desire in the world. There was a divine desire for songs and praises, for praises of the good and praises of the holy and, and so on, that human beings should, be, should rise on that wave. And he, he did more than anyone else to, to fill that literature, you know, to, to, to do that. Um, and she gets the merit of it. Zachta. That is, even though she didn't write any songs herself. We, do, we don't have any evidence that she... But listen to how she speaks. When she speaks, it's a kind of poetry. 
And point is that implicit within her, there is David. It was there to come out of her. Right? He came out of her not only biologically, but somewhere his root, his song root, is in her, in, in, in root, in a way that develops quietly in the course of the story. And we go back then, and for the last part of what I want to talk about, we go back then to who is root. What does it mean to become root? All right, that's what I've called my, I talk, call this talk, Becoming Ruth. Uh, I was thinking of that film, Becoming Jane, you know, Jane Austen, and so on. It's become a, a trope. Um, in what sense has she become Ruth? I would say, in a sense, it's because she doesn't have a very strong sense of self. And I'm going to try to explain that in, in a time when I know that's not a very popular way to be. You know, we, all, we think now that having a strong sense of self is a sine qua non. You know, how can you, how can you exist in the world without, without that? Now, what I'm thinking of is a few things. I'm thinking mainly of that word, Davik, that she clings. And she's described as clinging more than once, not only clinging to her mother-in-law, but in the field. She's supposed to, to keep close to the, she says, I keep close to the, to, the, to the men servants, and Boaz corrects her, and, and, and Nomi corrects her. No, no, keep with the girl servants. In other words, you know, be careful. Uh, she's somehow innocent. But the idea of sticking close, that word, that sticky word, dvekut. Now, dvekut is one of the great words in Jewish thinking, theology. The idea of closeness to God, of a certain kind of intimacy with God which apparently is within human capacity, in spite of the fact that ish ochlahu, what do the sages say? How can you cling to God? After all, he's a consuming fire. And it's dangerous. There's a huge difference between you and God, between flesh and blood and, and the fire of God. And nevertheless, there is such an idea, there's such a sense of v'atem hadvekim b'ashem, you who cling to God are all of you alive today. Where does your vitality come from? Right, we say it liturgically, as well. It comes from Sefer Dvarim. Um, we say it during the service. Yeah? You who cling to God. It doesn't just mean you who obey God, you know, who do what you're supposed to do. You who have that kind of passion to become one with God, even if it's a very limited oneness. Um, that's what keeps you alive. And that word is used, of course, not only of mystical practice or yearning, but it's used of erotic connection. That's where it comes from. Yeah? Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden. Vidavak right? right? What will happen forever afterwards? How will, how will babies be produced? Yeah? A person leaves his father and mother. Vidavak And clings to his wife. You know, it's clear what's meant. And they become one flesh, which you can take on different levels. Sometimes, it's, uh, some, some commentaries say that refers to the baby. You know, they, be, they become a new, a new body, a new... Uh, that oneness, in that, on that level, it's true. You know, there, there really is basar echad. Any other marital sense of basar echad is, is, is highly temporary. Yes, it's, uh, it, it happens for a moment. But, but the, the idea, then, of that being the yearning, for some kind of for some kind of uh, unity, both in terms of in sexual terms and in mystical terms, is clearly there. 
but I want to take up a very lowly association. The idea of stickiness. Right? What is this holding on? It's like, uh, this is an, uh, there's an, a famous essay by uh, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre uh, on viscosity, he calls it. Viscosity is a fancy word for stickiness. Yeah. And he says, the thing about viscosity, why does it make us uneasy? Is because it's neither this nor that. It's neither solid nor liquid. Yeah. And therefore, and Mary Douglas picks up this essay and writes about it in her great book, Purity and Danger, which is, I, I think, really one of the great books of the 20th century and um, highly recommended for those who haven't yet discovered it. She says, that experience of viscosity in the relation between two, two people, let's say, would be one that makes me somewhat uneasy. If one person sticks to the other, it's like getting your fingers into honey or, or molasses. You begin to fear for your own boundaries. You know, suddenly, there you are. Stuff is rolling. Is, 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 what's the word? Um, <laughs> come on, the English word. Dripping, all right, dripping, good. Yeah. In other words, it's, it's reluctant to leave you. <laughs> and there is this feeling of, you know, when am I going to get my hand back? <laughs> now, if you're holding something solid, then you let go. You, you, you are you again. If you have to get your hand in water, you give it a shake and a dry, and you're... But there's something clinging here which can arouse unease if one is concerned for one's identity, for, one's, for the purity of one's being. And that's why if Root insists on clinging, on sticking to people, she, she gets ambivalent responses. Right? She doesn't always get the kind of responses that she, she might have hoped for. In the, in the passage in the Gaon, I won't read it, I'll, just, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it very, very briefly. In number eight, um, he, he writes that when she falls on her face there at the beginning of the story and bows down and says, how come that you recognize me and so on, he reads this as her responding to the ambivalence of his response to her. That on the one hand, he's talking to her very nicely, as if he likes her and as if he's interested in her. And on the other hand, he somehow refuses to make any moves. And she feels what Tipol Alpaneha is read here as if she is depressed, as if her face falls. That she, she feels, I don't know what to make of you. That's, that's how the Go'on finishes there. Lo e da'et kavanatecha. I don't know what, what you intend. On the one, you blow hot and cold. On the one hand this, on the other hand that. Now that is the uneasy experience of someone who is an outsider who wants to stick, who wants to get as close as possible. She wants to be right in there. And the sense of being unknown and therefore unacceptable on some level dogs her. Her mother-in-law sends her down to the field and says, it's a creative, says you should resumpt, put on your nice clothes, go down via Radit and the Ushkhaft and lie and lie down at his feet. It's written the Samti, the Yaraditi, the Shachafti. I will go down, I will lie. Very strange. It's a creative and you, know, you don't have to make a lot of it, but how can you not? Um, so Chazal say, yeah. What, what, what is Naomi saying to her? I identify with you. She says, all the time you are living through this, I'm going to be with you. 
זכותי תגן עלייך. It's a way of saying that the human being is not just, you know, the limits of a self. I am capable of extending myself to you because by now I love you and trust you and I want that good things should happen. So that movement between two people that blurs the boundary between two people. And this brings me then to... to the idea then of the relationship between Boaz and, and, uh, and Ruth, I want to make a strange suggestion. And that is that it has something radically impersonal about it. That it represents an impersonal intimacy. In some sense, you can't say, for instance, if you think intimacy is people knowing each other very well, They obviously don't know each other. You know, it's, that, that's clear. And nevertheless, he's described as Makir, as the one who knows her and recognizes her. And so there are, there's an English school of, of psychoanalysis, uh, of whom Adam Phillips is one and Christopher Bollas is another, and they both write about certain forms of radical, radically impersonal intimacy, in which the fact that you know someone very well can really be a kind of defense. You know, you pride yourself on knowing them very well, but that can be a defense against really being with them, really being intimate with them. And on the contrary, some of the most intimate relationships, and they both, both Phillips and Bollas, write about the relationship between a mother and a young baby, a newborn baby. You can't get more intimate than that, right? The baby is just right out of her, yes? Um, and yet, Are they, what are they loving in each other? What are they, let me, let, me, let me use his language here. He says that this intimacy between the mother and the baby is not an intimacy that's based on knowledge. The mother doesn't yet know the baby, especially if it's a new mother. She is probably quite terrified because everything the baby does is unknown to her. She doesn't know yet how to read it, how to decode it. You know, she's, she's really, you know, It's a very unknown area that she, she is in and can lead to a lot of, a lot of trouble. Um, and the baby certainly doesn't know the mother. And yet there is a, a very real intimacy. And it's the intim and an intimacy, says Phillips, with the process of becoming, with a certain process of what's unknowably evolving between the two of them. They are both in some way given to that process. She, the mother more consciously, the baby is just doing it. Yeah. The, the, the mother is a transformational experience for the baby. The mother is the one who comes and changes the baby's state. Not only changes his diapers, but, but actually changes the baby's, whatever the child doesn't understand what's, what's biting him. I've got this demon tearing at my, my stomach inside. And suddenly she comes and attaches herself to me and that the demon quiets, quiets down. Now that sense of an enacted intimacy between two who really don't know each other with something evolving between them. That, it's a very, very powerful and, and, and beautiful idea. It involves a kind of being attuned. To the, the mother has to be attuned to the virtual being of the baby. Virtual being meaning what the baby may be moving towards, that the, this baby and I have a future. That sense of it's not just the moment, but we are part of a process. Something is happening here. 
Now, that it, what is that I mean by impersonal? And Ruth and Boaz, I want to say, there is something impersonal in the way they come together. They don't have time to know each other, that's clear. Also, when they do come together, Boaz marries Ruth. Clear, the, word, the name is used very clearly, so he knows the identity of the person he's marrying. But what happens immediately after that is that the townspeople celebrate the marriage by congratulating him about Haisha Habaa El Betecha, the woman who's coming into your house. Now there's that coming again. This woman is coming into that. It's another side reference to the fact that there was supposed to be no coming. But this woman is coming into your house. Or Hanara, or Kalatech. They congratulate Nomi for your daughter-in-law who loves you. No one mentions her name. Her name is, in a way, she becomes anonymous in the end. And not only that, uh, I think in some sense with Boaz, there's clearly the feeling of, of, of a relationship that has an intimacy even though it doesn't have, it's not, it's not personal in the sense. When I say personal, I mean like personal ads, you know, where people are characterized by all the things that make them, you know, that you can, you can, you can decide to buy them or not, you know, all the market, to the market attributes that they have. That's not the level on which they are together. And then when the baby is born, the most striking thing that happens, and I'm going to take a, a radical view of that, is that the baby is quietly handed over to Nomi. That Nomi takes the baby and places the baby in her bosom. Yes. And that's the strangest expression. And she becomes, well, omenet means suckles. Yeah? That's its usual use. And then, of course, there are some places where men are called an omen, you know, Mordechai, Moshe. And so we have a problem. And so can you just say that she became the nurturer? She became the, the one who brought the baby up? Nevertheless, it's right on the, on the edge of that boundary that should clearly delimit the mother from the mother-in-law, from the grandmother, I'm sorry, the mother from the mother-in-law, the baby's mother. And yet, Ruth is effaced from the scene. She just, it's as if she no longer is there. The townspeople name the baby, Oved, and the baby becomes a son to, to Nomi. And in the end, the story ends with genealogies, male names, double genealogy, uh, in which we realize that David, exactly how he's, the baby is a, is a grandfather of David, and of course, no mention of Ruth. I mean, it's all male names. What do you expect at that point? But I'm interested in the fact that she disappears before that, <coughs> that from the time he marries her, as it were, she becomes part of the pe That's her success, that she becomes part of her host people with all their ambivalences. And then the baby is entirely, grows in its own soil. And where is she? <coughs> and so I want to finish with a side reference then, to a reference to a story far in the future, since we're talking about the radiations of the future. If David could look back at how he came to be, at how he came to come into the world. Have a look now at this final midrash in number 10. We're going forward, fast forward, to the time of Melech Shlomo. Okay. Shlomo Melech. 
in the middle of the first line. They said, Lo meta ruta moavia ad shirata shlomo ben bena yoshev vedan dinan shel zonot. Ruth Moavia didn't die before she lived to see her grandson, um, Shlomo, sitting and dispensing justice in the case of the harlots. Now that's a real fast forward. You know, you zoom in there to the story that's told in the book of Kings, first book of Kings, chapter 3, the story of the harlots. Uh, everyone know the story? Anyone know the story? Can I just have a say, who knows the story? Two harlots come. Two harlots come to King Solomon for, for justice. One says, I had a baby. We lived together, this, this other woman and I, who are for some reason are called harlots, women without a man. Um, and the, uh, I, I had a baby. And then a day later, she had a baby. And during the night, her baby died. And she took my baby. And they come to King Solomon for adjudication. Now, the thing about this case is that there is no way that he can decide because there is no evidence from the past that should decide the matter. Identity is completely obscured. There are no blood tests he can do right, to, to, to ascertain you know, where, where, who, who is the mother. So what does he do? He says... I'll fill in the story here, and then we'll finish the midrash. Um, he says, so take a, take a sword and cut. Fair. And the true mother says, Give her the living child. But absolutely don't kill it. Kill, don't kill. That's it. She's, she's invested. She says, no. And the other mother says, that's fair. Loshali, yeah. loshala. Neither of us will have, will have the baby. Cut. She's quite happy. And how does King Solomon decide then? What does he say? Listen to the words. He says, He quotes the true mother. Give her but he means give her, give the mother, the real mother, the child, the living child, absolutely don't kill it. And then he just adds two words at the end, he imo. That's the mother. So he's quoting the true mother and says she identifies herself by the way she speaks. There is no objective evidence, external evidence that can... She identifies herself as the mother. And that's the way we go now. That is, there has to be space for that kind of justice, for a justice that is, in a way, exposed to the radiations of the present and the future. You identify a situation by, by what is happening now and what is wanted to happen next, what's going to happen next. Now, he's taking a considerable risk, of course, King Solomon, when he says, let's have the sword, let's, let's cut. And, he, and therefore, and in some way, he's moving beyond known ways of coming to justice, of coming to a, a, a just sense of things. And the whole people are in awe when they hear of this. And they said that he, he, know, he, he has divine wisdom in him, that he managed to, and he knows how to do mishpat. So he's, he's a lawgiver, he's a law maintainer, 
but not in what you might say is a purely empirical mode of just we know certain facts and so we can deduce from that. Let's finish the Midrash now. So he, he, she didn't die, Ruth didn't die. She must have been a very old lady at this point if she's still alive, right? So I imagine her as, as a kind of spectral presence, you know. She is, she's almost not there, you know. She's, and, she, and then what do we read in the text of, of the first book of Kings? He placed a throne for the queen mother, his mother, that's Bathsheba, and she sat at his right hand, that's Ruth Hamoavia. Now, just to make clear what the Midrash is doing, the move here, it's very, very uh, powerful. In the text, what is said is that it's his mother, um, the queen mother, Bathsheba, who is sitting at his right side. That's all. You know, she has a throne beside him, and she sat at his right side. And the Midrash comes then and splits the sentence into two and says he is flanked now by his mother on one side and his great-grandmother on the other who is an invisible presence, but then she always was. There always was something invisible yet powerful about her. And there she is, and she can't die, I would say, until she sees this scene. She can't leave the world until she sees that not only David Hamelech is writing poetry, you know, who came out of her, as a fulfillment of her, but that the, the man of law, the man of wisdom and law, who is the other side of the brain, you know, you might, you might say, is also in some way under her surveillance, you know, that she is looking at him. And when he makes his decision, it seems to me, reading it through this midrash, he makes it knowing she's watching him. That is, that she has not died specifically so that she should be there and oversee this moment, which sets him off on a certain, on a certain track. And so, in some sense, she is having her effect, and he is choosing an ancestor. By putting Ruth Hamoavia on one side, and Bathsheba, who had a slightly questionable history as well, right, you're putting two women, Ruth Hamoavia, Moav is notorious for, for Znut, for uh, uh, loose, uh, yes, uh, loose sexualities, um, uh, and, and having two women who are in some way associated with Znut, loosely speaking, people not, not uh, you might have thought of as the, fine, the finest of society, and there they are, one on each side of him, these two women, and they watch as Shlomo, from the heart of society, from, from the place where it counts, chooses his ancestors, basically, and that's what affects his decision. Uh, Robert Cover, the American jurist, Jewish American jurist uh, says somewhere, uh, choosing an ancestor is serious business. Uh, you have many ancestors, and so does so does King King, King Solomon, Melech Shlomo. But here he chooses who he wants sitting on either side of him in his flagship case, in the case that, and then Ruth can leave the world. You know, on this level, there's this sense of a kind of restlessness in Ruth knowing that the future is the thing, that in some way she couldn't predict what would happen. It wasn't that kind of prophecy, but it was a sense of potential. It was a sense of power there inside her, and she wants to see what comes of it. Thank you.
Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Pardes Live in miniseries featuring Dr. Aviva Zornberg is presented by the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series 5780, Women in the Wilderness, Four Narratives of Spiritual Power. For more digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org.